Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. In today's world, it's not uncommon to run into designer knockoffs like handbags or watches. But what might seem like just a good deal is actually part of a multi-billion dollar illegal industry of fashion piracy. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Today we'll be talking all about counterfeit fashion and the fight against it. Our guest is Heather McDonald, a partner at Baker Hofstetler Law Firm and a leading pioneer in the fight against counterfeit fashion. Heather, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks, Joel. Why don't I start with a basic question? Why isn't buying fake fashion just a good deal? <laughs> well, uh, so selling it is illegal. Uh, so if you're buying it, you are certainly um, uh, supporting a criminal enterprise. Um, but also think about it this way. Companies spend huge amounts of money designing goods, doing research and design to make sure that they are, in fact, on the cutting edge of fashion, uh, hiring models and holding fashion shows, uh, making top quality merchandise, putting their names and logos on these goods, and then somebody else is just coming along and slapping it on an inferior good and selling it. So the goods themselves are vastly inferior, and they're supporting a black market economy. The people who are selling counterfeits, they're not paying taxes, they're not supporting the legitimate economy, and as a result of that, you have all kinds of issues. Jobs are being lost, the types of factories these goods are made in are often you know, very big consumers of child labor, unsafe working conditions. Uh, so everything about it is bad. There's just no good to be found in the world of counterfeiting. So before we get into some of the inherent problems with counterfeiting, let's start, I guess, with a, a bit of a disclaimer. Many of your clients are some of the largest producers of, of fashion and fashion accessories. Correct. I've always been on one side of this issue. I have been on the side of protecting the designers uh, in the fight against counterfeiting. I've never represented a counterfeiter. I just wouldn't do that. Um, and so I'm very passionate about the issue because I've been sort of working hand in hand with my clients for almost 30 years on these issues. Why don't we talk about some of these externalities, some, some might call it, or additional problems. One of the things you already mentioned was uh, taxes. How is that implicated? The Comptroller of the City of New York several years ago did a study on counterfeiting and determined that the City of New York loses a billion dollars a year. Just New York City. Just New York City. A billion dollars a year. Imagine what the City of New York could do with an extra billion dollars. I'm certain that there would be no, at least. Yeah, no closures of firehouses, there would be school nurses in all of the public schools and new textbooks, and yes, you might actually be able to drive down the FDR Drive without losing a tire. Beyond fixing New York into a perfect utopia. Uh, one of the other criticisms people raise is that the working conditions of the people involved aren't being regulated. Well, that's completely true. The factories where the counterfeit goods are being made are completely unregulated. They're operating definitely under the radar. And so um, treaties that uh, for good trade where companies agree to have workers work only a certain number of hours a day with an appropriate number of breaks and make sure that they get fresh air and access to bathrooms and things like that. These are not uh, the same guidelines that are being followed by the counterfeiters where you often find absolutely deplorable working conditions. In the counterfeit world, it's hard to separate the industry of knockoffs from China. 
Correct. Uh, China is the number one supplier of counterfeit goods. Customs issues statistics every year about the importations into the U.S. of counterfeit goods and the seizures that they have done. And China is the number one country for the export of counterfeits and the import into the United States. Uh, Sixty-three percent of the counterfeit goods that come into the United States are coming from China. Is there progress being made in shutting down these illegal fashion factories? Depends who you ask. Um, there's been a lot of media attention recently on uh, Alibaba um, and their... Which is essentially Chinese eBay? Correct. Um, and so their uh, CEO has been on a big campaign to talk about their legitimacy and what a great company they are. And so many people um, that are involved in the fight against counterfeiting have continually raised the issue that the sale of counterfeit goods on Alibaba is tremendous. And in fact, they have an online marketplace called Taobao, which is just filled with counterfeit goods. And so if you ask the CEO of Alibaba, he will tell you that tremendous progress is being made, not only individually by his company, but by the Chinese government. Um, it's not that I don't believe that he believes that. I just don't see it. In China, there's, a, there's an additional counterfeiting, which is counterfeiting the entire store. How does that work? So the laws that relate to the registration of trademarks in China are different uh, than they are in the United States and are sometimes more difficult to navigate. And companies sometimes find themselves in a situation where a Chinese national has actually obtained rights to use their trademark in China. And then it's a big uphill legal battle to get those rights returned to the rightful owner. Um, so what's happened is you'll occasionally find an entire store that's a knockoff, like a store that's an Apple store, except it has nothing to do with Apple, and it's not But it's selling electronics Apple. that have the logo on it. Correct, but it looks like an Apple store. It's set up in the, with using the same types of you know, physical materials to make it look like an Apple store. And there's lots of instances of this, you know, sportswear companies where whole stores will be set up to look like they're official stores just selling that particular brand of goods. Let's talk a little bit about the laws here in the U.S., because that's really where your practice is. Yes. Counterfeit production in and of itself is illegal. That's correct. It's illegal on both the federal and the state level in most states. So there's a body of federal law that says that it is a crime to manufacture, distribute, sell, or otherwise traffic in counterfeit merchandise. Uh, many states also have a law that says that it's illegal to do those things on the state level. So the federal law covers all 50 states in the United States, and the individual state laws obviously only cover the individual states. The enforcement agents that enforce these laws, on the federal level you have, of course, Customs, Homeland Security, the FBI, uh, the Postal Service. There's a lot of different federal agencies that get involved in the enforcement against counterfeit goods. And on the state level, by having a, uh, a law that makes it illegal within a state, that allows the local police um, sheriff's offices, deputies, and things like that to be able to enforce the law on the state level. So maybe let's start with the federal level. Am I breaking the law if I ship in a crate of fake handbags? Yes. And what law am I breaking? Several. Uh, you know, there are uh, uh, laws that make it uh, illegal from the perspective of an importation, an illegal importation into the United States, a violation of the customs laws, um, as well as a violation of the Lanham Act, which is the law that deals with the infringement uh, and counterfeiting of trademarks uh, throughout the United States. It's illegal to import counterfeit merchandise and then sell it or distribute it or warehouse it or manufacture it or store it here in the U.S. So when we're talking about actual breaking of the law, crimes, 
What type of punishments are available? You can go to jail for up to 10 years for selling counterfeit merchandise on the federal level. On the state level, it's usually with a maximum term of about seven years in jail, um, as well as significant fines that can be payable by an individual or by a corporation that's involved in the sale of counterfeit goods. On the state level, how do the states measure up against one another? Many of them have a similar level of punishment. Others are less uh, stringent. Um, so there is a, a wide variety of enforcement techniques across the states that have laws. And there's a couple of states that don't have laws. So where do counterfeiters want to go? <laughs> well, wherever they go, the federal law will cover. Okay, so, so you don't <laughs> want to give any clues for, uh, for the, the I don't want to set states. up a safe haven for counterfeiters in any particular state. This could be the moment that we start pushing those lax states <laughs> to enact tougher laws. True, although you have to remember that counterfeiting is a, uh, it's a supply and demand issue. So even if there were a state that had no laws and all the counterfeiters set up operations there, if you don't have a ready supply of buyers, you can't make any money selling counterfeit goods. You have to have a ready supply of buyers and then somebody will find a way to supply those goods. So maybe this is a good point for me to raise that is not actually illegal to buy a counterfeit good. Not in the United States. So the purchaser hasn't broken the law. Correct, not in the United States. It is illegal in a couple of foreign countries Where? to purchase counterfeit goods. It's illegal in France, it's illegal in Italy to make a purchase of counterfeit goods. It is not illegal to purchase counterfeit goods in the US. So if you're traveling from China with a layover at Charles de Gaulle in Paris, you might run into some issues. Yes. Well, there's a couple of things. If you get up, when you get off the, uh, the plane in Paris, there are signs all over the airport warning about counterfeit goods. And I have been in the customs line with people who have had counterfeit goods seized from them. And they've tried to argue that, oh, no, I didn't buy this here. You know, but if they can't prove prior ownership, then I've seen goods be seized right out of consumer suitcases. Does that happen in the U.S. at customs? It's illegal to import counterfeit goods. So yes, an individual who is bringing counterfeit goods back in is subject to having those goods seized from them. It's not because they've purchased it illegally. The crime doesn't relate to the purchase. It's it relates the to the importation. That also covers, uh, oftentimes people will buy things in foreign countries and ship them home. Customs, through working with the U.S. Postal Service, examines a lot of incoming shipments and a lot of counterfeit goods are seized when they attempt to ship them back into the United States. So in the U.S., New York is known as kind of a hub for counterfeit goods. What are the laws here that, that prohibit it? So New York has a section of the penal code, which I actually was... Um, one of the people who wrote the original law and lobbied for its passage in Albany. And that section of the penal code makes it a crime to sell counterfeit goods in the state of New York. So you helped draft the law? I did, I helped draft the law. Uh, the original law was enacted in uh, 1990 and then there was an amendment that closed up a couple of loopholes in 1991. So what are the consequences for, for counterfeiters under the New York law? So it's a three-tiered crime. And at the lowest level, if somebody is selling counterfeit goods where the aggregate retail value of all of the counterfeit goods that they're selling 
is under $1,000. That's a Class A misdemeanor, which is punishable by up to a year in jail. If the aggregate retail value of the counterfeit goods you are selling is between $1,000 and $100,000, um, that's a E-level felony, which uh, has carries a penalty of one to three years in jail. And if the aggregate retail value of the counterfeit goods exceeds $100,000, that's a C-level felony, which is punishable by three to seven years in jail. So generally, do you see counterfeiters being charged simultaneously under both state and federal law? Not typically. Usually it's one or the other. Typically you can only prosecute uh, the crime once. And so if you're prosecuted on the state level, you can't be prosecuted for the same crime on the federal level. If perhaps you are charged federally with a different crime, a conspiracy crime or a racketeering crime or a money laundering crime that involves the same underlying facts, you would be able to be prosecuted for that. But you can't just be prosecuted for counterfeiting twice, not based on these same sales. So that's from the criminal side. A big part of your practice and what you're doing is on the civil side. How does that work? Uh, the Lanham Act uh, contains provisions that allow a company who has registered trademarks to go after individuals and entities who are selling counterfeits of their trademarks. So here it's not the state, but, but rather the owners of the, of the copyrighted material. Correct. In this case, it's trademarked items. Trademarked. There's material. a companion provision in the copyright law, but the, these are, these, the Lanham Act covers trademarks. Uh, so there's a series of provisions that will allow a company to go into court ex parte, which is rare in our legal system because the whole system is based on notice and an opportunity to be heard. So any opportunity to go to court ex parte is quite rare. Ex parte means no defendant, just one party, just the, the person with a problem. Correct. So you go into court and you basically explain through a series of papers that you file and then usually a hearing before a judge that you have located individuals and or entities that are selling counterfeit goods. And you have to be very specific. You have to identify where the goods are being sold. You have to submit documentation that they are, in fact, counterfeit, uh, that you're going to be irreparably harmed if this isn't stopped, that these are the types of the defendants who, if they knew you were coming, would hide their goods or remove them so that you would never be able to find them. Is there a burden of proof for this? There's a, a very high level of proof because, again, being that this is an ex parte proceeding, uh, the judiciary takes it very seriously. And if you can prove all of the things that the law lays out, then you can get an ex parte seizure order that allows you to go to a location where the counterfeit goods are being sold or stored or manufactured or distributed and seize them. So the reason for the ex parte, the reason why it's only one party is there's a risk if you notify them that you're coming after them, they'll just move it. Correct. And when this law was enacted, there was a lot of testimony um, and the legislative history makes clear that when you notify them that you're coming, there's never anything there when you get there. So that's Convenient. the reason why it's ex parte. Okay. So what are you doing under the Lanham Act? So you get an ex parte seizure order and you go to a place where the counterfeit goods are and it's like, surprise, we're here with a federal court order and we're going to take all those goods now. Maybe you can give us an example of how that goes down because <laughs> my guess is it's not that simple. <laughs> it's not that simple. I, I've been on over a thousand seizures in my career and I have seen things that absolutely astonish me. So when I first started, counterfeiting was wide open and rampant. You could walk up and down Canal Street, go from store to store to store, and there are thousands and thousands of counterfeit items that were openly offered for sale. Um, now it's extremely hard to find them. So I, I think of that as quite a victory in the enforcement world. It's much harder to find them and, and consumers who still want to buy counterfeit goods will go to crazy lengths 
to try to get them. It's harder to find them or it's harder to see them openly? Well, it's harder to see them openly. So you can, if you want them, you'll find them. You'll go down and somebody will sell them to you. It's just the way the sales take place now is very different. You can't just walk into a store and, you know, have a, a look at on what everything that's on open display and pick which counterfeit handbag or pair of sunglasses or designer watch that you want. Typically, you'll engage in a conversation. And if it's a small item like a piece of jewelry or a watch, there'll be a knapsack nearby and somebody will reach in and retrieve one or two items for you to look at or try on and examine and things like that. So are they limiting their exposure under the law? Are they trying to keep the net value of these items low enough so that they would only be charged under the lowest That's certainly part of it. They're also trying to not get caught entirely. If they do get caught, to make sure that they're operating at the lowest level of a crime. But also they're trying to be mobile. They're hoping that if somebody comes in looking, you're just going to slip that backpack over your shoulder and walk right out of the store as if you're a customer, and nobody's going to stop you, and then there won't be any counterfeit goods left behind. Um, when you're selling items that are uh, larger, like a handbag, a pair of shoes, clothing that actually somebody might want to try on or at least hold up and see you know, if it looks like it's going to fit them, you need a little bit more real estate than a backpack to be able to do that. So where you used to be able to go into the stores and just look around and pick out whatever you wanted, um, as enforcement really picked up, and that's a enforcement by the private sector, people like me working with clients and going in and doing seizures, as well as the NYPD ramping up their efforts and doing a tremendous amount of enforcement and the federal government getting involved and the mayor's office getting involved. There's a lot more people that are focused on counterfeiting now. So the counterfeiters have to get a little bit more uh, sophisticated. sophisticated if they want to be able to sell stuff. I'm always amazed from the consumer perspective what people will do to buy a counterfeit item. How do you mean? Um, so uh, I was on a seizure, you know, not too terribly long ago where we had to walk a couple of blocks off of Canal Street, which is sort of like the hub of counterfeiting. People still think of it that way. And if you want to buy counterfeits, you generally go to Canal Street and somebody will come with me. I'm going to show, take you someplace. So you walk a few blocks away to an alleyway that's just, you know, sort of right out of a movie. You know, there's garbage blowing down the street and you walk up to a door that's just covered with graffiti. It doesn't have any words on it or a number or anything. And somebody opens up the door and you walk into this strange little vestibule and down a flight of stairs that are so rickety that I felt like I was in a horror movie. Literally, there's one light bulb hanging out of the ceiling, like swaying back and forth. There's a mangy cat that's running around. You have police with you, but these individuals had to go in on their own. <laughs> Correct. I work with a lot of investigators with the law enforcement agents and stuff like that. But so you go down these stairs with the rickety light bulb and the mangy cat, when you go by, and there's a big puddle of, I don't even want to know what, that you have to jump over. And then you're in this dingy basement, which was clearly at some point like a machine shop. And there's all these old boxes with dusty parts that don't even make sense for anything. And they've like created this walkway through them. And you kind of get to the end of it, and there's a plywood room that's been constructed in the middle of this basement. So you can see the light coming out from under the door. So we knock on the door and say, we have a federal seizure order. Please open the door. And what we heard was, shh. And then the lights went out. You can hear people talking. They're shushed. So we knock on the door again and say, we have a federal seizure order. You know, open the door or we're going to come through it. Shh. So we ended up, you know, uh, breaking the door down and going in. And what we found in a room filled with counterfeit handbags hanging on the walls in display were a bunch of women from New Jersey who were shopping for counterfeit goods. And their reaction is priceless because the reaction is, oh, 
oh, I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. And I'm thinking to myself, really? The graffiti door, the rickety staircase, the light bulb, that cap, right? <laughs> the puddle of I don't know what, nothing tipped you off? But even better, when we knocked on the door and said we have a federal seizure order and the guy told you to shush and turn the lights off, still no idea you were doing anything wrong? Hmm, I don't really find that believable. But people will go to a lot of lengths if it's something that they want. At that point, if one of the individual customers had already purchased one of the bags, would you be able to take it from him or her? It's an interesting question. So one of the, this actually happened in this very seizure where uh, somebody tried to say, no, 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 I already bought that bag from another location and I brought it with me so you're, you can't seize it. And I said, do you have a receipt? And they said, no. Conveniently, conveniently. Uh, conveniently, these places don't often come with receipts. Correct. So no way to prove that it, that it didn't come from that location. And that was the location where we were doing the seizure. So we seized what she claimed were her bag as well. It was you know, a brand new counterfeit item. And you can tell the difference between somebody's personal handbag because amongst other things, it has their personal things in it. <laughs> <laughs> when you're showing up uninvited, unannounced, are there risks involved? There certainly are. Um, it's much better now than it used to be in the early days of enforcement when Chinatown was like the Wild West for us. The counterfeiters were running rampant. There was a huge amount of merchandise out there. We were in the early stages of understanding what was really going on. Um, we had some issues with violence. I actually had all of the knuckles in my hand broken. We were doing a raid and I was just busy counting out counterfeit watches from someplace and, you know, sort of out of nowhere, somebody came out with a metal pipe and just whacked me. And uh, struck you with the pipe. Yeah, struck me with the pipe. Um, it hurt a lot, but there's also a lot of adrenaline <laughs> going on. So it wasn't until later that I really realized Did how... Did you give up the watches? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. And then my hand turned into a boxing glove and I was like, huh, pretty sure it's not supposed to look like this. But uh, with the help of uh, some great doctors, I was able to retain my full mobility, although I had a whole Edward Scissorhands cast-like thing to... Well, I'm me. glad that you're, you're back to 100%. Thank you. So in your experience with the goods that you're seizing, have the quality, have the, the types of goods changed over time? Not really. Um, so the types of goods that are sold are anything that's popular. Whoever's popular in the marketplace is going to be the most heavily counterfeited brand out there. Um, the quality of the goods really hasn't changed. I think there's a little bit of a misconception that te technology has gotten better and so the quality of the counterfeit goods has gotten better. That's not really what we're seeing. What we're seeing is a different type of sales technique that makes people think that the quality of counterfeit goods is better and thus makes them pay a higher price for it. And we see this a lot because of the internet. You know, when the internet exploded and became the marketplace that it is today, and I mean statistics show that people are buying as much if not more on the internet than they are in, you know, live in-person shopping experiences, um, it really changed counterfeiting as well on a lot of levels. But what we see a lot are photographs, sometimes of genuine items, but when they're sold, they're just your typical cheap counterfeit items but people think that they're a better quality than they are due to a photography style, or sometimes they'll get packaging material that you would get if you bought something at a genuine store where you'd get a, hand, you know, a, a, a paper bag, but it's still the same counterfeit item. I've seen counterfeit items that you could buy down on Canal Street for $40, exact same items being sold on a website that, by the way, is being operated by the guy that'll sell it to you for $40 in person, selling it for 
to a consumer someplace else in the United States who thinks they're buying a high quality item. So it's more a question of price point than it is quality range in some cases. Many cases. Why don't we take this opportunity to talk about what's been a major shift in counterfeiting, which is the online revolution. Sure, the internet really dramatically changed the way counterfeit goods are sold. You know, there's a lot of anonymity on the internet, not as much as people think, but certainly a little bit harder to find somebody who's trying to hide on the internet than somebody who's trying to hide, you know, in a bricks and mortar world. So a number of big changes have happened. Um, one relates to direct sales to consumers by Chinese operated websites. So a lot of websites that you will go on to are in fact operated out of China, which makes them more difficult to reach from a jurisdictional perspective. If you want to sue them in the United States, you can still do it, but it's a little bit harder. But also it means the consumer is buying directly from China and then those goods are being shipped to them in small quantities. So we're seeing uh, a big change in how custom seizures are taking place. So what kind of sites are these? Are these uh, focused on one particular brand or are they uh, wide open marketplaces they, of counterfeit goods? Yeah, they tend to be um, product specific, but not necessarily brand specific. So you'll have a website that will sell all sports jerseys or a website that will sell shoes or a website that will sell handbags. So we see a lot of them that are specific to a category of goods. And then we see websites, these real rogue websites, where they've essentially copied the genuine website. And they're trying to convince, you know, make a consumer think when they get there, that they're actually on the genuine site. So they're using a lot of the same images. They're stealing the images off the legitimate websites and putting them on there so that the whole website might be dedicated to one brand and sell all items of that one brand. But the consumer could be confused as to whether or not they're on a legitimate website or not. So instead of Gucci.com, it would be buy your discount Gucci.com or something like that. Correct. Okay, quick break for the MCLE code. The code for this interview is 61115. That's 61115. And now back to the interview. Okay, so how would you go after someone whose assets are not in the United States? There's some been, been some very interesting developments in how these cases are um, civilly prosecuted here. A um, couple of different things. There's, as we've talked earlier, there's civil, civil and criminal uh, laws that are being violated when you sell counterfeit goods. So the government has a series of programs that they do designed to go after these websites. Probably the best known one is operated by Homeland Security Investigations, and it's called Operation In Our Sites, and they will seize the website. And when they seize the website, they'll then put up the seal of the United States government, Homeland Security Investigations. So if a consumer is looking for that website, instead they're going to get a uh, web, uh, a big seal of the U.S. government that says that this site has been seized for the sale of counterfeit goods. So uh, it basically says, you want to come here, guess what, it's gone, we took it away. Correct, correct. Okay. Now, um, the way that you pay for things when you buy on the internet, typically people will pay via either a credit card or a wire transfer service, sometimes through PayPal or like a Western Union wire transfer. And it's actually very interesting how the money chain, you know, moves around. And it doesn't just go directly from you 
to the bank account of the counterfeiter. It actually goes to a couple of different banks along the way, and it takes a few days for that money to get from point A to point B. So one of the things you can do is target that money that's in transit that hasn't reached their bank account yet. Now, this is something the government does, but it's also something that a lot of companies have done as part of civil litigation to stop the counterfeiters. You file a lawsuit where you're suing the lawsuit in REM. So you're suing, you're suing the website in REM. You're not suing an what individual. Is it's jurisdiction of the thing as opposed to of a person. When you sue somebody, uh, if I have a grievance against you, I, we had a contract for something and I think you breached it, I'm suing you and I have to have personal jurisdiction over you in the venue in which I sue you. In REM jurisdiction is not personal jurisdiction over a person or a corporation, it's jurisdiction over a thing. So in this case, you're asking the court to give you jurisdiction to sue the website, not the people behind it. So the defendant is actually the website itself. Correct. The lawsuit would be, you know, XYZ company versus counterfeitsareus.com. So you then also have to ask the court. Is that an court. actual store? <laughs> I'm sure it was at some point. <laughs> uh, but you, you then ask the court to allow you to serve via email because most of these websites, that's the only way to contact them. They don't list a physical address. Or if they do, it's a bogus address that you can't really find. So you, so you have to look for the contact us information Correct. or attempt to buy the item and say, take this down, you guys are fake. Correct. So then now you have in-rem jurisdiction over the website and you serve by email. And what will happen is nothing, right? The, the, the Chinese-based website will just default and not respond to any proceedings. So then you can proceed to the stage where you would ask the court to enter a default judgment. And one of the things that you ask for is to seize the name of the website and for any proceeds associated with the sale of counterfeit goods. If the court enters that order, you can then take the order and serve it on MasterCard, Visa, American Express, Discover, PayPal, Western Union, and all of them will then turn over any funds in transit that have not been directly remitted yet to the counterfeiter to you. So you go to the payment processors, Correct. ask for the cash, I don't know if we want to get into it, but my question might be, are they taking out their percentage first before they're giving it back? <laughs> uh, in fact, they're not. They will actually transfer all of the money that's in transit. So it may be that they took their percentage before that money got to where we were able to have it turned over. And you mentioned it, but how do you actually go about taking over their domain? The domain registrar. You go to the domain registrar, you serve your uh, court order on them that says that this website now belongs to me. And they will transfer ownership of the website to you, and then you have the right to go in and edit it however you want. Who's the domain registrar? Is that like going to GoDaddy.com and Correct. saying? Yes, GoDaddy okay. is a domain registrar. That's a good example of who you would go to and say, that website now belongs to me. One issue when you're going after counterfeiters are the fact that they may or may not have that much in assets to go after. What other tools do you have on the civil side? So the seizure of the counterfeit goods is obviously a, a significant tool because you're taking away a lot of their merchandise. And you're correct that a lot of times the counterfeiters aren't operating in the same sort of legitimate sectors that other business people are. So they may not have bank accounts that you can subpoena and try to, you know, freeze and then seize their assets. But, you know, you can look into what they do own and you can get a default judgment and you can record that default judgment, which will then mean that if they ever try to take out a mortgage or a home equity line of credit, that's going to show up and prevent them from being able to do that unless they settle with you and get that lien removed 
uh, from their record. Um, sometimes there's homes that you can go after or vehicles or other assets that you can find. Um, but the principal thing that you can do, if you're, particularly if you're talking about a bricks and mortar location in the United States, is you can actually go after the landlord. So this is a third party. This is someone who may be seen as facilitating. Correct. Um, another big trend is third party liability, looking for somebody who does have assets that you might be able to go after. A big trend that you might have been at the uh, forefront of? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> yes, I've done a lot of cases going back a number of years. We filed the first lawsuit uh, here in New York uh, going after a landlord, got a very significant um, uh, settlement with the landlord based on a default judgment that was entered against the actual counterfeiter. And then we told the landlord that we were going to ask the court to hold them jointly and severally liable for the full amount of this judgment, was uh, which was... So, so you're talking significant numbers. How are, how are these damages being shown? So the civil law contains a provision that allows for an award of statutory damages. And what that means is if you can't prove actual damages because the defendant has defaulted, for example, you can get an award of statutory damages. And those numbers can get very big very quickly. Uh, the law says that you can get between a thousand and two hundred thousand dollars of an award per item per trademark. So let's explain how that works. Let's say you have a watch, and the watch has a brand name on it that's a trademark, and it also has a logo on it that's a trademark. And then on the winding stem, it might have a third logo that's also a trademark, and maybe there's something else on the face that's a trademark. So that's one watch with four trademarks on so it. So if it's a Rolex, it may have a crown and another crown. That would be three different trademarks. Correct. So in that situation, if the court were going to award you $100,000 of statutory damages, you would say that each watch has three trademarks on it. So it's $100,000 times three for each trademark. So each watch, you could get an award of damages for $300,000. I can see how that would add up. Sure. One question is, would courts really find a landlord responsible for that amount of liability? Probably not 100%. But what if they held them liable for 10% and you had a judgment for $100 million? What's 10% of $100 million? It's a big number. That's a lot of money that a landlord might have to pay in a case like that. So that is a, a very good uh, prompt for settlement negotiations. And it's probably also a good prompt for getting the landlords involved in enforcement on their own. Absolutely. You know, the tide has really turned. I get a lot of calls now from building owners who call me and say, hey, I think there's some guy in the third floor that's doing something bad. Can you check it out? I want to get rid of him if he's a counterfeiter, which is interesting that they're sort of ratting out their own tenants. But it's because they don't want to be on the hook for this. It's a lot of money. We've talked a little bit about how China is making changes in counterfeiting, and we've talked a lot about U.S. law. Are there any international or multinational programs or efforts to stem counterfeiting? One of the things that I think is really cutting edge is a program that is run by the International Trademark Association, which is a global organization uh, focusing on trademark issues around the world. Uh, they have a program called Unreal, and this is a program, it's a public awareness program that targets teenagers all across the globe to try to make them aware of the evils of counterfeiting, to try to get the next generation of consumers not to want to buy counterfeit goods, thus looking to a decrease in the supply because the demand will go down. 
It seems like there's a great number of tools in your arsenal to fight the counterfeiters. But at the end of the day, as long as there's a demand, won't there be a supply? There will. And so one of the greatest tools that we have and that really needs to be the focus of a brand enforcement program is public awareness and public education about the problem. I think if more people knew stories about the young girls who were making counterfeit bags in China that ended up dying, and if more people knew about the lack of taxes being paid and how the economy wasn't being supported, and if people really understood what was going on, they'd be less likely to buy counterfeit goods. I think that communicating this to the public is one of the most important things that we can do, because if we can decrease the demand, the supply will decrease, of course, as well. Which, you know, as, a, as an enforcer yourself, it might be part of your job that you'd be happy to to put aside? <laughs> I would consider it such an amazing victory to have seen counterfeiting go from where it was when I did my first seizure in 1986 to essentially non-existent. I would happily retire this part of my practice at that point. Well, on that note, Heather, it's been a pleasure having you walk us through this fascinating topic. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us here at Talks on Law. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.